right, this is going to be 171 part B, the land before his shearers. And uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time and then try to get right into the study, okay? Father God, we do thank you for the beauty of the spring, which reminds us so much of, of new life coming out of that which looks dead but isn't. And it reminds us of the resurrection, which I know you purposely orchestrated to be at this time of the year. There's just resurrection in the air. We thank you so very much for the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ who came to earth to save us, and we cannot ever thank you and appreciate that enough. And Father, I ask now that, um, that you would help us to, to concentrate and focus and meditate on your word and what your spirit has to say to us as we look again at the silence of the lamb before his shearers, and, and may I not say anything that would mar the image of your son May there be no spirit of the world in this place, but only the Holy Spirit, so he can activate the word and, and just make us more into the image of your Son. Should there be anyone here among us who has not ever truly been born again, I pray, Father, that she would see the Savior and submit to him, bow the knee and confess with the tongue before it is eternally too late. And now we ask that you would be lifted up this morning, Jesus, because you alone deserve all the honor glory and praise that we can possibly ever give to you for we pray in your name amen well with today's lesson we begin our discussion of the third phase of the lord's civil trial before the gentile authorities who were represented at that particular time in israel by two men pontius pilate the roman governor of judea and herod antipas the tetrarch of galilee We've already considered, of course, our Lord's first trial before Pilate, which ended with Pilate going out before the public, out of the praetorium, and officially declaring Jesus' innocence. He said, I find in him no fault at all, but he did not set him free. He declared him innocent, but he didn't set him free. He hesitated because of the fierce resistance he immediately encountered from the Jewish religious rulers who figured that they had sufficient influence over the future of Pilate's career to sway him to cave in to their wishes if they created enough of a riot. They had him between a rock and a hard place. He really didn't want to crucify this unique man who he had just inter interrogated regarding his kingship, he really didn't want to crucify him because he understood and knew that he was being falsely accused as a, a threat to, Reza, to Caesar because these rulers were envious of him. They were jealous of him because of his, not only his righteousness, but um, because of his uh, popularity with the common people and his power. So Pilate didn't want to crucify him. However, he also knew that if he didn't give in to these stubborn, clever people, Give, give them what they wanted, what would they do? They would go running to Tiberius Caesar, exactly, with their lies. And just one more issue with Caesar would very likely cause Pilate his position, if not his life. You know, if it was reported that he did absolutely nothing about a royal rival to Caesar, it could cost Pilate his life. So, and Pilate, as we saw several weeks ago, if you weren't here, you need to get the tape from a couple weeks ago, we... Um, talked about his history and over the past five or six years as he has been the Roman governor of this area of, of Israel he uh, he hadn't been too wise had he <laughs> as he's ruling these headstrong people 
So he'd made a lot of mistakes, a lot of miscalculations. So now he is walking on eggshells with them. And so this then was his predicament. And he thought, what am I going to do? When all of a sudden, as all the accusations against Jesus are being shouted out at him, he heard someone in the crowd say a particular word that his ears picked up on. Somebody shouted out and said, this man, speaking of Jesus, has been stirring up Jewry, the Jews, since the beginning of his ministry in where? Galilee. And when Pilate heard Galilee, it was like, aha, he's a Galilean. Therefore, he comes under the jurisdiction of Herod, who also happens to be in town, right? Herod was in town, like all the political rulers would come into Jerusalem, especially at feast days, as, as such as the Passover, because that's always when there seemed to be some kind of trouble. So Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, and we had our look at the Lord's second civil trial as he stood before Herod, and only Luke gave us that particular report. It was one of the most tragic scenes in all of the New Testament. Herod, who had once listened gladly to John the Baptist and respected his godliness, had over the course of the years allowed his pride and his lust for an evil vixen named Herodias to steer him into such debauchery that his conscience was now completely seared. By the time Jesus is standing before him, Herod's conscience is seared. He has no interest in anything spiritual, and he has no fear, which is a danger, no fear of man nor of God. So he was really... Beyond redemption, he had crossed that line. He was beyond redemption because he had tuned out one too many times the voice of God. And now God himself was standing before him and had absolutely nothing to say to him. The only man in the scripture that Jesus didn't speak to when spoken to. Although Jesus was brought to stand in judgment before Herod, who was the one who's already been judged? Herod is the one who's already been judged. The Lord said absolutely nothing in response to Herod's many words. We said, you know, we learned that Herod said many words to him. He probably threatened him. If you don't perform a miracle, I'll I'll have your head. Or he probably even tried promising him his freedom if he would perform a miracle. We don't know what he said because it's not recorded. A man like that's not worth recording their words. But Jesus responded to him in no way, did he? Didn't say a word and he didn't perform a miracle. And when Herod finally realized he wasn't going to get anywhere with with Jesus, uh, and all he really wanted was some new form of entertainment, right? Just wanted a new thrill, as so many people in the world do. You know, they're just seeking more and more, and that's all he wanted was some other new kind of entertainment. He'd had all the sensual dances already. (laughs) But uh, when he finally realized he wasn't going to get anywhere, he and his men of war did what? It was awful. We read that he sat him at naught, set Jesus at naught, which is, means that they considered him a nothing, a nobody. They just, he was just a nothing, and they made a buffoon out of him, or tried to. Of course, nobody can make a buffoon out of Jesus. They really were making buffoons out of themselves. But what they did is mocked him with their wretched laughter, insulting his supposed kingship by arraying him in a gorgeous robe a beautiful, brilliant, white, gleaming robe, which God himself actually used. He always can use men's evil to, uh, to work for good, and he was using that robe to show the white purity of his son and the actual kingship of his son. But their ridicule of the Son of God, don't you know, is going to haunt them throughout all of eternity. 
what they did to the Son of God. Ridicule of Jesus seems to be a favorite sport these days. Nothing really new, is there? You know, a lot of people ridicule Jesus just using his name as profanity. Don't, doesn't that, oh, I hate that. I hear it all the time, you know. They use the name of the blessed, the name that is above every name, and they use it as a curse word. And then we have the uh, elite intellectuals who dominate our university system, and they just, you know, they belittle Jesus as a kind of like a buffoon. And those of us who believe in him as Lord and Savior and God of the universe, creator, you know, we're a bunch of fools who, who just cling to our, our beliefs because we need a crutch, you know. And then you have those who are just infidels who don't believe in Christ, not, nothing about Christ, and they, they hate him. They're antagonistic against him. They despise him. But God has given his son a name which is above every name. And one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, Herod included. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every day. It's much better to bow the knee and confess today than it will be in that day of judgment. But I believe Herod is going to be at the front of the line when it comes to judgment for mocking the Son of God because he mocked him in person. And he had had so many opportunities. Remember in your homework, he had heard from John the Baptist all those years. He went down to the prison and he had all those guys around him and women that that knew about Christ. He was up in Galilee and that's where Jesus performed most of his miracles and the Sermon on the Mount. He was without excuse and yet he mocked the Son of God in person. Terrible. I would not want to be in Herod's shoes on the day of judgment. Well, the second phase of the Roman trials ended when Herod returned Jesus to Pilate. Poor Pilate. It's like hot potatoes back in his hands, right? <laughs> Thought he had resolved his, his dilemma, and he gets Jesus back. So his attempt to pass the buck failed. The only thing Pilate managed to accomplish in having sent Jesus over to Herod was a reconciliation in their friendship. Big deal. Pilate is now back in friendship with the wicked, awful, horrible Herod, Antipas, who beheaded the Baptist and mocked the Son of God. Not exactly the kind of person you want to have as a friend. Wouldn't it have been a lot better to have been the friend of Jesus than the friend of Herod? But that's the only thing he accomplished. It said in Luke 23:12, the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together. For before, they were at enmity between themselves. What a strange thing when enemies, antagonists, are reconciled because of their opposition to Jesus Christ. Think about this. The governor had hated the Tetrarch. The Tetrarch had hated the governor. You know, Pilate and Herod had hated each other before this. The Jews hated the Roman Pilate. And they also hated the Idumean slash Samaritan Herod, right? While those two leaders also hated the Jews over whom they ruled. The Pharisees hated the Sadducees. The Sadducees hated the Pharisees. The Zealots hated the Herodians. The Herodians hated the Zealots. I mean, we could go on and on. Isn't it so dumb that this continues to this day? Hatred, one little group hates another group, and it's just all so stupid, isn't it? If we could only see it from God's perspective... It's just like when your, your children are fighting. God's children, we're always fighting with one another. Why? Because one little group thinks they're better than the other group? Stupid! But 
Truth is definitely stranger than fiction, isn't it? Because this is truth. This is the way the world has always been since the beginning, when one brother killed the other, Cain killed Abel. And it's going to be the same way at Armageddon. You know, in the end, at the end of the tribulation, uh, the Antichrist and his forces are going to be against Israel, trying to demolish Israel, and then you're going to have him also fighting some kind of another coalition of the West that's come together, and the kings of the East are going to come together, and they're all going to meet in the Valley of Megiddo, and they're all going to be fighting each other, you know, the culmination of all that warring. And then who's going to appear in the sky, and all of a sudden all these enemies, all these antagonists turn in their opposition against him. They, they become reconciled, and they're fighting against Christ. And we're going to be with him as his army, but we won't need to fight because he's going to settle the whole thing with just the sword of the spirit of his mouth. He'll say, drop dead or whatever he says. <laughs> He'll say, I am. And boom, 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 boom. Mm. We'll get to see that. Ooh. We're going to be there. And I'm going to ride a horse for the first time. <laughs> and not fall off. <laughs> Well then, with Jesus back in the Judgment Hall of Pilate, the third Roman trial begins. And you think, wow, we're making better time than we did with the Jewish trials. Not so, because the third trial goes on for a long time, okay? So we'll be here for a while. And we're going to find that this third and final trial of Jesus, this third, uh, well actually it had six trials, but this is the third and final Roman trial, it actually involved two sessions of Christ standing before Pilate, and those two sessions are broken up with a recess in the middle. And what happens in that recess period? Pilate has Christ scourged. Horrible, terrible scourging. I am not looking forward to next week when we meet again, because we will be talking about the scourging of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was absolutely horrific. So anyway, if you look at your outline for this lesson, you'll see that we're in the second division, which is called the selection of the crowd. And under this second division, we're going to discuss three sub points. We're going to look at the uh, Pilate's Passover bargain, Mrs. Pilate's precautionary dream, and the multitude's providential choice. Who do they choose when given a choice? Exactly, Barabbas. All right, let's begin by looking at Pilate's Passover bargain. Get your fingers nimble because we're going to go from Luke, Matthew to Mark, okay? But we're going to start out in Luke 23, Luke 23, starting at verse 13. <clears throat> and I'm going to go ahead and read because I've got a long lesson. I'm going to read. You try to catch up with me, all right? Luke 23, 13. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people, and behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. That's Pilate's second confession of the innocence of the the Lord Jesus. And then he goes on and talks about Herod. He says in verse 15, No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him, unto Christ, by Herod. Verse 16, I will therefore chastise him. That makes a lot of sense. He's just declared him innocent for the second time and says that Herod also declared him innocent. And then he says, but I'll chastise him. I'll scourge him and then release him. Verse 17, for of necessity, he must release one unto them at the feast. That was a custom. And we'll talk about that. All right. Now, if you could move real quickly over to Matthew 27, Matthew 27, keep your finger in Luke because I'll go back to Luke. 
Matthew 27, I'm going to start reading at verse 15. Matthew 27, 15. Now at that feast, which of course was the Passover, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would, their choice. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. <clears throat> verse 17. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you? Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ. For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Terrible that he's given the people the choice, right? Why, would that, why, why should he give the people the choice? He should have just released Jesus. What? Yeah, that's not exactly justice. <laughs> All right, Mark 15. <clears throat> Jump over to Mark. Mark 15. I want to read verses 6 to 10. <clears throat> Now at that feast, he, Pilate, released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them, that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. In other words, to release one of the prisoners. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. Okay, um, I'm not going to have you go to John. I'll read John 18:39. It's about the same thing. It says, Pilate said unto the crowd, but ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? So we find in Mark and in John, he refers to Jesus as the king of the Jews, which really irritated them. Okay, now you can go back to Luke if you would. Go back to Luke. From Luke's account, which I read first, we learn that by Herod's return of Jesus to Pilate without a verdict of condemnation and without any physical harm having been done to him. Now, they mocked Jesus, Herod and his men of war, mocked him, but they didn't do anything physically harmful to him. They just put a robe on him and laughed a lot, you know. But uh, he sent him back to Pilate without any damage having been done physically. So Herod was making a statement that he found nothing worthy of condemnation in Jesus. By this action, Herod was essentially saying to Pilate, since we're not in Galilee, I give you authority over this case. Uh, Jesus is your prisoner, and I trust you to do what is right in, in, with him. But I have found nothing worthy of death in him. And there's no doubt that Pilate understood that this is what Herod was basically saying you know he didn't put it in words but he knew this is what Herod was saying because when he went out of the praetorium to again address the chief priests and the and the rulers and notice 2313 also includes the people why before he was basically just talking to the religious religious rulers now we notice there's a crowd gathering it's morning early morning people are getting up and so there's an ever-increasing crowd of people outside of the praetorium and um and and Pilate says to them you know, you've brought this man before me. I have found, I've examined him. I've found nothing wrong with him. I find him innocent. And also Herod did too. He found nothing worthy of condemnation. So we know that Pilate understood what Herod was doing. So, um, actually, I think Herod's thinking might have been, if the Jews are going to be mad at somebody, he'd rather have them be mad at Pilate, right? So he sent the hot potato back to Pilate. All right, by Mosaic law, we've talked about this in the past, but you know that by order of uh, Mosaic law, the lambs, the little lambs that were to be offered as a sacrifice on the Passover, 
had to undergo the strictest scrutiny to make sure that they were absolutely without what? Blemish, right, without any blemish or any spot. And they would actually take these little lambs into their homes and make them a pet for three and a half or four days and examine them very carefully to make sure that they were absolutely spotless. Well, Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the entire world, underwent a scrutiny unlike any lamb had ever undergone. A scrutiny that included the examination by his worst enemies. Who were his worst enemies? The religious rulers. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. uh, They had scrutinized him. And he had an apostate disciple who scrutinized him, one named Judas. He was also scrutinized by a cruel, self-centered politician named Pontius Pilate and by a cold, heartless, low-class tetrarch named Herod Antipas, and later on by a thief on a cross next to him and by the Roman centurion who was in charge of the whole crucifixion. And guess what? They all scrutinized the lamb and all attested to the complete spotlessness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that why the chief priests had to go out and get false witnesses? Isn't that why they called the money they gave to Judas blood money? Remember when Judas said, I have betrayed the innocent blood? Every one of these scrutinized the lamb and all, even though they didn't want to, they wind up admitting, yes, he's without blemish. We can't find anything wrong with him unless we lie. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, they had to, they went out and got their false witnesses, but God provided his true witnesses, didn't he? And in the most unlikely places. He also added Mrs. Pilate. We could throw her in, as we're going to see a little bit later this morning. Seems like it is getting colder and colder. Pretty soon it's going to start snowing in here. I know, I know. We have a picture that we need to put up of a bunch of uh, Russian Jews, I mean Russian Christians, who are meeting in the deep forest somewhere in secret. Have you seen that picture? And it's just the, the forest and the ground is covered with white snow. Just, you know, Russia. It looks like it's Siberia or something. And these Russian people are standing up with their coats and they're huddled together and they're having their church service. And they walked to that place. And they don't have a roof over their head. And I think about that when I think how we complain when we, we're sitting on nice, soft, padded pews. And the weather isn't quite what we'd like it to be in here. But let's remember our brothers and sisters in other countries who don't have a wonderful facility like this to meet. Okay? You'll shiver. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, so the Lord provided his witnesses. Well, Pilate made his second declaration of Christ's innocence as well as Herod's agreement with that verdict, out in the open, didn't he? He went out and he did it publicly for all to hear. Jesus Christ wanted to be examined. You know that? He wanted. He he wanted to be examined. He wanted the proof of his sinlessness to be made public because he had absolutely nothing to hide. The same is true of the gospel message. The gospel has nothing to hide. Anyone can examine the claims of Christ. Anyone. Everything he did was out in the open. Everything he spoke was out in public. He has nothing to hide, you know, as opposed to some religions and some cults where they meet in secret and in the dark and they don't want you to know unless you join up with them. You have no idea what's going on in there. The evil hides in darkness, but the gospel is open to the light. It wants to be examined. Christ wanted to be examined. It's interesting to me that both Pilate and Herod... 
saw right through the lies of the Jews regarding Jesus. And yet it did not shame these religious men that all their accusations were exposed by both Roman rulers for what they were. And what were their accusations? False, absolutely false. And it didn't shame these religious rulers, too, that their motive was known. What was their motive? Pilate knew they did it out of envy. They were jealous of Jesus. Um, But it didn't embarrass these men who you would think, you know, these are guys that pride themselves on their piety. You would think that it would embarrass them or stop them. Wouldn't you be embarrassed if you were out there somewhere publicly lying about somebody and and your motive was because you were jealous and then you got exposed? But it didn't stop them. It didn't embarrass them. Why? Why didn't it? Because works-based religions, religions that are all about the externals, don't affect the heart. They don't change the heart. So these men, you know, they're just... Oh, they're whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones, and it just doesn't bother them. It doesn't affect them that their their hearts aren't right. And so they go on with even more full force with their lies against Jesus, not at all embarrassed. Well, with the publicly stated judicial decision of both the Roman governor of Judea and the ruling Tetrarch of Galilee, the absolutely, positively right thing that should have followed would have been for Pilate to release the prisoner for Jesus to be released. They both, Herod and him, had both said he's innocent. He should have been released. Righteous justice demanded it. And if Pilate had done that at this point, everything would be okay for Pilate. Of course, he'd still need to get saved, but we wouldn't always think of Pilate in the way we'd think of him as a wishy washy, compromising politician who did wrong, right? Because we could justify the fact that he did send Jesus to, to Herod because of the Galilee thing, right? We could justify that. But unfortunately, he didn't release his prisoner because he still is more interested in himself and in his precarious situation with Caesar than he is in doing the right thing for another human being, one who just happens to be God. Can you imagine the shock on Pilate's face when he entered into eternity and found out the one he had put behind himself was actually God. Ooh. Well, what we find next is that apparently somewhere along the line, and this is probably when Jesus was with Herod, Pilate came up with another possible loophole or plan of escape for himself, just in case Herod sent Jesus back to him. He probably thought, oh, I've passed the buck, it'll be out, but what if Herod sends him back to me? And so he came up with this other plan. This idea of his would make it possible for him to avoid crucifying an innocent man and yet also appease the Jews, or so he thought. (laughs) I don't know when this custom came about, but there was at this time and had been in play for a while a custom at the Passover feast for the ruling governor of Judea to pardon or release a prisoner who Rome had uh, arrested and imprisoned for, for whatever cause. You know, usually somebody who was an insurrectionist of some kind or a murderer or someone like that. But the governor at the time of the Passover could declare amnesty on one prisoner, <clears throat> ever fearful, of course, that there could be a riot in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover when there were literally millions of people there, Jewish people, and they way outnumbered the Roman soldiers. They thought that by doing this, I guess, they would sort of pacify 
the Jews, you know, and, and maybe calm down any hotheads, hot-headed zealots who were just itching to start trouble with Rome because of um, the, uh, their oppression. Now, I don't know if Rome always let the Jewish people pick the prisoner who would be set free, but Pilate did so in this case. Now, he, he probably could have just taken the authority and said, I'm going to release Jesus according to the Passover custom. But he gave the choice to the people for some reason. He, um, he said in Mark 15, 6, whomsoever they desired. <clears throat> and, of course, his thinking was that now that there's a lot of people gathered around in the, in the, outside the praetorium, not just the Jewish religious leaders, but the multitudes, his thinking was that they would choose Jesus and they would override their leaders because there's more people than there would be leaders. Okay, so are you following me? You know, after all, just a few days earlier, these people had, or some of them, had hailed Jesus as he came into Jerusalem, as they're waving their palm branches, and they hailed him not only as the son of David, but as the king of Israel. So his thinking is that um, the people will prevail, and they'll ask for the release of Jesus, and he'll be done with the whole mess. So now he offers the Jews a compromise, which he hoped would appease the savage desires of these accusers. He's going to also scourge Jesus. He's going to chasten him, which was so horrible and so bloody. You will find out next week how awful it was so that Jesus didn't even look like a man anymore, that he thought it would satisfy the anger of the Jews, the leaders against Jesus. You know, um, they would look at him and they'd say, you know, their anger, they wouldn't be jealous anymore. Look at him. He's just a mess. And so they, they would not, they would not want to have him crucified. He didn't know them very well, did he, at all? But he thought that in doing this, he would, he would, um, he would be able to let Jesus go. And then also he uh, gave them the choice of, of letting one prisoner go, and they, he thought they would release Jesus. But also think of this. In doing this, he was, he was really saying to the Jewish leaders, the chief priests in particular, that, that, that from thenceforth they could consider Jesus a criminal you know, by scourging him. You don't scourge someone who, who's innocent, do you? I mean, it's total travesty of justice. So even though he's already declared Jesus to be completely innocent twice, he's willing to compromise with the Jews by this nonverbal way of saying that he was guilty. You know, in scourging him, it was an implication of guilt. So from thenceforth, the Jews could say, we cannot consider Jesus to be our Messiah because he was scourged by the Romans. Therefore, he is a criminal. The Romans don't scourge anybody unless he's a criminal. So you see what he's doing here? It's terrible. And then he would release Jesus based on the, uh, the Passover custom. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the reason I read all four of those to you is because all four Gospels tell us of this awful travesty of justice. This was terrible. They all record this unprincipled act of, on Pilate's part to offer Jesus' release based on a custom rather than releasing him based on the fact of his innocence. Customs, you know, are very poor substitutes for law and justice. Do we do that in this country? Do we have customs that pervert law and justice? We do. I was thinking, you know, um, 
not too long ago, it was on the news that the governor of Mississippi, Haley Barber, he's, he was stepping down. And you know, like when a governor or a president steps down from office, <clears throat> they're allowed to declare amnesty on some prisoners, sometimes even those on death row. Well, when Haley Barber stepped down, he released a whole lot of prisoners, really bad dudes. That's like going with a custom instead of what's right, law and justice. Those guys were released back into society. But we do that too. <clears throat> of course, it was equally wrong and equally evil, maybe even more so, I get, yeah, more so, to offer to scourge a man in order to compromise with his envious false accusers. You know, compromise might work when no moral principles are involved. For example, <clears throat> you might want to, you might want to paint this room. I would just give a silly example. Terry and I, okay, we're going to paint the church. <laughs> I'll paint, you wash the brushes. And I want to paint, I want to paint the room um, green, and she wants to paint it yellow, okay? So we compromise, and this side is green, and that side is yellow. <laughs> I don't think they'd be too happy with us, Mary, here at the church. But, <laughs> but that, you know, when there's no morals involved, compromise can be a good thing. We all need to learn how to compromise. But when morals or biblical principles or the fundamentals of the faith, you know, doctrine, absolute biblical doctrine or ethics are involved, a person or a church that compromises is doomed. And one other thought, you know, Jesus should have been released by an act of justice. He should have been released by an act of justice. But... If the Jewish people and their leaders had taken up Pilate's offer to release Jesus as the custom warranted, his release would have looked like it was by way of an act of grace. You, know, you have to think about this. He should have been released by an act of justice. But if Pilate, well, we know Pilate did give the people the choice, and if they said, okay, release Jesus, that would have looked like he was released by an act of grace, wouldn't it? And so it would have made their evil appear good. I mean, he should never have been arrested in the first place. They had no crime, no accusation against him. So it would make evil look like good. Because they're releasing him. We're being gracious to him. It also would have made his good look like evil. That he had to be at the mercy and grace of the people. So he must have been a criminal to be released by their their, their sympathy. It also would have made their envy look like it had softened into pity, wouldn't it? So it would turn everything upside down. But that's exactly what Pilate's suggestion is. And that's what would have happened if they had taken him up on that suggestion. But guess what? Again, he didn't know these people very well. The Jews were not about to show grace or pity for Jesus. You see, what Pilate didn't understand at all was the satanic influence that he was dealing with in this situation. He had no idea that he was attempting to compromise with a hatred inflamed by none other than Satan himself. You cannot reason, try to reason, or try to compromise with Satan's hatred of the Son of God. You can't. There's no logic to it. Satan hates the Son of God, and you cannot compromise with that hatred. Pilate was completely wrong for what he 
proposed, but he might have gotten away with it if he was dealing with some other kind of people group. He still hadn't learned about the stubbornness of these Jewish people. And he might have gotten away with it also if it was someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But it wasn't going to work in this case. He had apparently thought that the common folks who had now begun to assemble with the Sanhedrin members outside of the Praetorium would seek the release of Jesus, especially after seeing him scourged. He would play on their sympathy for a man he knew that they admired. The common people did, I mean, how could you not admire Jesus? And he may even have thought, as I said earlier, that even the leaders would be satisfied when Jesus' scourged was brought before them. But, and that they could from thenceforth say he was a criminal. But as he had done repeatedly in his past history, he seriously misjudged the Jewish, his Jewish opponents. Plus, they had an ace in their hand that he completely apparently forgot about or didn't even consider. They knew, you see, that there was another prisoner named Barabbas, a robber. If you read, you know, we read all the Gospels, and so when we put them all together, we find out that this man was a robber, he was a murderer, and he was an insurrectionist against Rome. You see, they were going to ask for his release instead of Jesus's and totally stump Pilate. Again, everything Pilate hoped to gain by way of this horrible travesty of justice in this unethical, brutal whipping that he would give to Jesus, it was going to fail, like everything else he tried. So Pilate's thinking might have been that the common people would prevail over their leaders, outnumbering them in their choice to release uh, Jesus. He may have been, you know, trying to pit the people against their leaders. However, it didn't help his cause in the deliberate way in which he referred to Jesus as the king of the Jews. That didn't help his cause. That was not very wise. You know, he was purposely jabbing at their egos, the leaders. I'm talking about the chief priests. He's jabbing at the egos of the chief priests uh, that such a, um, per, such a passive and meek and submissive, weak man as Jesus, one who didn't even resist his arrest, And he looks pretty shabby already. He hasn't even been scourged, but he's been spit upon and beaten already, right? Um, That he was their king, that really infuriated them. That, That did nothing positive at all to advance his cause of getting Jesus free. It merely goaded them on to a further demonstration of their anger. Well, the next event, how am I doing? Not too good. (laughs) The next event in the sequence of the third Roman trial evidences, once again, the providence of God. If If in nothing else, certainly we see the providence of God in the timing of this next event. You see, Mrs. Pilate sends her husband an urgent message when, just as he is sitting down on the judgment seat, to make his declaration about Jesus' scourging. You see, God's redemption plan, his plan for mankind's redemption, is going to be accomplished. He would accomplish it. Nothing would ever stop it. It would be accomplished by the shed blood, death, and resurrection of his son. But, But the timely dream of Mrs. Pilate, just like the sop that Jesus offered to Judas, And like the message that Jesus had earlier sent to Herod before his conscience was seared, that on the third day he would be perfected, 
uh, Herod, no matter what you do to me, third day I'm going to be resurrected. I want to warn you about that. See, all these things are what? They're providential reminders from God that he sends in grace to warn the sinner against sinning. See, his plan would be accomplished regardless of what Pilate did. What if Pilate had released Jesus? What if? Would Jesus still have died? Oh, yeah, he had to die. He would have died. Pilate, however, would not have been responsible if he had listened to his wife's dream. God sent the dream, you know, as a warning. What if Herod hadn't done his part? Well, Jesus, of course, would have still died because Herod gave him right back. But Herod, Jesus tried to get Herod out of sinning when he sent him that message about his resurrection. Same thing with Judas. We saw that when we studied Judas over and over again. The, you know, it was the Lord reaching out in grace. Somebody else would have betrayed him. Somehow it all would have worked out. But God, in his grace, was always trying to prevent the sinner. He does the same thing for you and I. And we have to be listening. But Pilate, Pilate's conscience wasn't seared yet. His conscience and his convictions about this case were already urging him to not crucify Jesus, to not kill him. So when a message arrives from his wife at the very moment that he is taking his seat on the judgment seat, at the very moment he was about to give in to temptation to compromise justice, he should have paid attention. We all love this as wives. He should have paid attention to his wife, shouldn't he? (laughs) Yes. The dream and the intervention of Mrs. Pilate, who tradition, by the way, says her name was Claudia Procula. And her intervention is only given to us by Matthew. So if you want to turn over to Matthew, only Matthew tells us about this. And it's only found in one verse, Matthew 27, 19. Let's read about Mrs. Pilate's precautionary dream. 27:19. When he, that's uh, Pilate, was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? Who's the just man? Jesus. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. For Pilate to be sitting on the judgment seat was a critical responsibility, especially when that responsibility had to do with a man's life. It was not a time when a governor's wife would intrude, except, you know, in a case of an emergency or something. Actually, Rome did not want their politicians' wives to travel with them because they did not want the wives to have any influence on their husbands when it came to important matters. And uh, we have an example of how a wife can influence a, a political ruler for the bad, right? Herodias, that awful vixen, had um, put her husband uh, captive to her lust, and uh, to his lust, I should say, when she had her own daughter, you know, used her own daughter to do a sensual dance to get her husband to promise the daughter anything that she wished, and then the mother had the daughter ask for the head of the Baptist. Awful. So that's what a wife could do. What I want you to do is the, for your homework questions this week is questions, I think it's 6 through 10, in the books. But add one more question, okay? And this will be a fun one for you. Here it is. You don't even have to write it down because you'll remember. Compare or co- contrast, contrast Mrs. Pilate and Mrs. Herod, okay? Have fun with that. Compare or contrast the two of them. There are a lot, there's a lot of contrast. Mrs. Pilate stands in sharp contrast to Mrs. Herod. She was trying to save a just man, not behead him like Mrs. Herodias did. 
She was kind of, I got to thinking, Mrs. Pilate, Claudia Procula, was kind of like Esther, really, in the fact that she broke the rules when she interrupted her husband with her message. She didn't go in person like Esther did before the king, but she sent a message, was, which was just as bad, but she did it anyway. Why? Why did she do it? Well, she was concerned for her husband. She wanted him to do the right thing. Also, for some reason, she was very concerned about someone else, the just man, Jesus. You know, after spending five or six years in Israel with her husband, she's heard about Jesus. She was concerned about him. So she wanted Pilate uh, to stick to his original verdict of not guilty and have nothing more to do with this just man. And then she told him of her dream, which had caused her to suffer many things. Obviously, she had just had the dream that night. You know, it's early morning. She's getting up, and the dream is vivid to her. She remembers it. It was uh, very clear that she had been told in her dream to warn her husband not to do anything to Jesus. Don't condemn that just man. In listening to her conscience and in being sensitive to the dream that was sent her way, and who do you think sent her that dream? I believe it was God that sent her that dream. And by attempting to be a good helpmate, Claudia Procula added her own testimony of the Lord's innocence and righteousness to the list that God himself had provided as true witnesses for his son. Therefore, she's the only woman to testify on Christ's behalf in all of his trials. That makes her unique and special, doesn't it? And by the way, we don't know what happened to Mrs. Pilate, but there is a lot out there that says, you know, tradition. You can't be dogmatic about what tradition says, okay? So what I'm going to tell you now is not any, there's only one verse in the Bible about her, so we can only speculate what happened to Mrs. Pilate. But tradition does say that at the time of the trial, she had already become a Jewish proselyte, that she had already put her faith in Jehovah God. Maybe that's why she was with her husband in Jerusalem, was to celebrate the Passover, because the Ro Rome did not want her to be there. But also tradition says that after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, she became a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to this day, the Coptic Church, the Coptic Church is mostly, you hear about it in Egypt. Orthodox, the church I came out of, Greek Orthodox, are very similar to the Greek Orthodox, um, but most of the Coptic church people are like in Egypt, in that area. And they're the ones that have a cross that has a circle at the top of it, you know, kind of an oval circle. And you'll hear today in the news about the persecution of the Coptic Christians in Egypt. Because the Muslim Brotherhood, are, you know, they're after them. They're after those, um, those people. But anyway, to this day, they, they honor her as a saint. You know, they put some people above other people, which we don't do. If you're born again, we're all saints, right? But they elevate some people and call them Saint so-and-so. And so they have her Saint Claudia. And they do say that she was, um, a, a, became a believer. The Greek Orthodox Church does the same thing. Now, the Greek Orthodox, they're funny. You know, when I was growing up, they have what's called a name day. And, and when you, if you meet a Greek, they'll, they'll say, one Greek to another, they'll say, what's your name day? Forget about your birthday. They don't care about birthdays. What's your name day? You know what a name day is? A name day is your name and what saint you were named after. All right? Well, I was not really named after Saint Catherine. I was named after my grandmother, who was Catherine. But my, my saint was Saint Catherine, and her name day 
is November 25th. Did you ever know that, Catherine Whiteman? November 25th. Have a big celebration, balloons, cake, the whole nine yards. <laughs> well, Claudia Procula's name day in the Greek Orthodox Church because they canonized her as a saint. <laughs> Mrs. Pilate, Saint Mrs. Pilate. Have you, did you ever know that? Her name day is October 27th. Anybody have that as a birthday? Okay, well, tell, you can tell him that he was born on Claudia Procula's name day. That'll make his day. <laughs> All right. All that was for free, and it has nothing to do with the lesson. Okay, you can imagine that this timely and serious mystery message from his wife put added pressure on Pilate, because now he's not only battling his own conscience, but he's battling his wife's confirmation of what his conscience was already telling him. Furthermore, you know the Romans were highly suspicious uh, I mean, not suspicious, superstitious, where dreams were concerned. They seldom undertook any great decision or enterprise without seeking the favor of the gods, and they put a lot of credence in dreams because they felt like it was the gods maybe speaking to them. And we find out that Pilate was superstitious because later on when he finds out that Jesus proclaimed to be the son of God, he gets spooked, doesn't he? Because he thinks, oh, he's, a, he's the son of a, one of the gods. What am I doing here? So he is superstitious. So um, anyway, all this is, as this is going on, he's getting this message from his wife. The, the Jewish leaders are outside trying to persuade the multitude, which has now become a large group, to have Barabbas released instead of Jesus and, and have Jesus crucified. So let's look real quickly at the multitude's providential choice. Are you in Matthew? Where are you? Matthew 27, I'm going to read verses 20 and 21. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whither of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said Barabbas. I was going to read Luke, but I'll leave that for you to read later on. It says about the same thing. All right, after Pilate had proposed chastening, the chastening idea to the crowd, and had then made his Passover custom offer to release Jesus with his rather sarcastic words, you know, will you that I release unto you the king of the Jews. And apparently while he was taking his place on the judgment seat and then received his wife's message, we learned that during this time, what's going out on outside? The chief priests and the elders are persuading the people to pick Barabbas. Actually, over in Mark's account, I didn't read it, but it says that they were moving the people. And the word moving is the, comes from the same Greek word as earthquake. I mean, they are really, they, they are like uh, shaking and stirring up the people into a frenzy to, to pick, you know, to incite them to demand for the release of Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. Isn't it amazing how easily people can be influenced and swayed by others? Isn't it just incredible how fast they can go from, you know, hailing him as the king of Israel to crucify him, crucify him. But especially mobs can be easily swayed to make wrong choices and to want things that go against principles and, and proper justice. It didn't take them long at all to cry out for the release of a robber and a murderer instead of the good and gentle Jesus who had done nothing but good works among them for the past three and a half years. But Barabbas had been involved in what? insurrection against Rome and in, in his involvement in that insurrection caused him to murder some Roman soldier 
but he did murder. But he had been an insurrectionist. And sadly, this was the type of hero that the people were looking for. This was a type of hero to them. And so they didn't care that he had robbed and murdered in the process of his insurrection. You know, they didn't care that he had broken two of the Ten Commandments. Jesus might have been a good person. Oh, yeah, they all admit he was a good person. They even seem to believe and understand that he was a prophet of God. And even, yeah, some type of a messianic figure. But what did that matter if he wouldn't do anything about freeing them from the hated Romans? You know, to their thinking, at least Barabbas had risked his own life to do his part to deliver them from their bondage to, to Rome. So to their thinking, he's more like a, a deliverer, like Moses. You know, thinking of Moses at the time of the Passover. Barabbas fits the picture in their mind more than Jesus. The Jewish people, you see, spurned by their leaders, were making a choice between two ideas about the kingdom. Barabbas had hoped to establish a kingdom of this world, which is why he fought and shed blood. But Jesus' kingdom, as he had told Pilate, is not of this world. And the proof is, what? That his servants do not fight. His kingdom would not be established by violence, but it would be established by the shedding of blood. However, it wouldn't be the shedding of the blood of his servants. It would be the shedding of his own blood. It's absolutely, horrifically hypocritical of the chief priest, but we should expect this by now, right? <laughs> so hypocritical that they were telling Pilate and stirring up the crowds to tell Pilate to release a man who was guilty of the very same thing that they had accused Jesus of being guilty of. How, how hypocritical. They're, they're, they had been pretending to show loyalty to Rome when it came to crucifying Christ for his sedition against Caesar. He's a threat to Caesar, you know, and they're carrying on. But their true inner selves come out when they want a to release a, a real insurrectionist against Rome and Caesar, right? This is showing their true colors. Before Pilate, they had accused Jesus of political ambition, and yet they rumble and they quake among the people to get them to choose Barabbas for the very same reason. Who were the ones with poor character? Who were the ones with poor character? Those who were choosing evil over good. They're showing their true evil character here in choosing Barabbas. Their choice didn't make Jesus any less good, and it didn't make Barabbas any less evil. Their choice didn't mean that Barabbas was a better man than Jesus. It was that Barabbas was a man after their own hearts. That's why they chose him. When the Jews chose Barabbas over Jesus, they were condemning themselves. Do we not find that this, usually the same evil people who make choices and decisions, whether they're politicians or judges or whatever, that try to favor the criminal. You know, let's give rights to the criminals and let's have amnesty on the criminals and lessen their sentence and let them out. And this, those are often the same people who want to push God out of our schools and push God out of our society. Same thing. Choosing Barabbas over Jesus. And when people like that control a nation... Trouble and divine judgment lurk ahead, as it did with the Jewish nation of the first century. 
Nations that reject Jesus Christ and instead choose to stand with a wide variety of Barabbases, and boy, are there a lot of Barabbases out there, are nations that are fit for divine judgment. You know, a nation judges itself by the choices of its heroes and its leaders. It does. Who are your heroes? Who are your children's heroes? Who are your grandchildren's heroes? I hope they don't watch American Idol and have them as their heroes and their idols and, you know, the Hollywood crowd. And Who are your heroes? You know, one of my heroes is an elderly man. I've never met such a godly man in my life, and probably most people have never heard of him. Dr. J. Allen Blair does glad tidings on BBN radio station. I got to meet him and his wife. Most of the world was like, who is that, you know? But that's important. A nation judges itself by the choices it makes for its leaders. Peter made this clear in his sermon in Acts 3.14 when he said to the Jewish people, he said this, quote, Ye denied the Holy One and the just. Use the same words as Mrs. Pilate. And desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Those are Peter's words, and they're so true. In refusing Jesus, the true son of the Father, the Jews had chosen in his place another son of the Father. Now listen to this. Who was the father, the physical, biological father of Barabbas? Well, we don't know but he was probably a rabbi. Why do you say that? Because his name means son of a rabbi. Bar, you know, when boy turns 13, he has a bar mitzvah. Bar means son, son of. Rabbis, rabbi, ra- means rabbi, son of a rabbi. We don't know who, who that might have been. But more importantly, who was his spiritual father? Well, it's very obvious, very obvious. He had the same spiritual father that the chief priests had. They were liars, weren't they? Lying all about Jesus, liars. They were murderers. Who were they trying to murder right now? Jesus. They were also thieves. They were false shepherds robbing their own people of the truth and eternal life. As the Lord had told them earlier, back in John 8, their father was not Abraham, They were of their father, the devil, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, as well as the father of all those who believe lies over truth. So it makes sense, then, that these men would choose one of their own brothers, Barabbas, a fellow thief and murderer over Jesus, the Son of God. And this reminds me of what the Jews are going to do again in the latter days. Last day in the, the days of the tribulation, when once again they were going to choose to receive one in the place of Christ, one who is a liar and a murderer and an insurrectionist against the true God and a thief, the son of perdition, who we know as the Antichrist. Well, you know, there is, of course, as with everything in Scripture and in God's providential plan of redemption, a strike, striking picture that the release of Barabbas gives to us of the gospel message. The guilty man, Barabbas, whose name also means 
son of the father, like we're all the children of the father, son of the father, because bar, Abba, Abbas, Abba, what does Abba mean? Father. His name can be son of a rabbi and son of the father. Both names apply. He, the guilty man, is set free and the innocent is put to death. You know, one of the greatest doctrines in the scripture is the doctrine of substitution. According to Mosaic law, the firstborn of an unclean animal, and actually the scripture uses an ass, in Exodus 13, 13, where we hear about this law of substitution, God has such a sense of humor because he's really calling all of us unclean Barabbases, at, you know, A-S-S-E-S. It probably wouldn't sound very nice for me to say that on the tape. <laughs> but the firstborn of an unclean animal, and God uses the ass, could be redeemed, how? With a spotless lamb, doctrine of substitution. The unclean firstborn animal could be saved from having to die if a spotless lamb was sacrificed in its place. But guess what? The lamb could not be redeemed. Who was going to die for the lamb in the lamb's place? There was no sacrifice that was provided to redeem the lamb. Read it. In Exodus 13, no sacrifice provided to redeem the lamb. The lamb. So the question is, then, for you, who had to die? The perfect, sinless lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, or the unclean sinner, represented by Barabbas, or the ass? <laughs> if one was going to be set free from death, which one had to die? It had to be the lamb. It had to be the lamb. It was impossible for Christ to be released. Why? Because he is the lamb. There was no sacrifice provided to redeem the spotless lamb. Also think about this. The choice of the people really only required that Pilate release Barabbas. Correct? Okay, he gave them the option. This is the Passover custom. I can release unto you a prisoner. Which one would you like to have? And they said Barabbas. So all he's really required to do is release Barabbas. <laughs> Barabbas. It did not require Pilate to then condemn Jesus to die by way of crucifixion. He had no obligation whatsoever to do as the people said in regard to the crucifixion. No obligation to do that. Pilate's fault, you see, was not in releasing Barabbas. His fault was in condemning Jesus to death. And yet, overriding all of this, this whole thing, overriding all of it, God was using men's evil to accomplish his redemptive plan. Why? Well, because it was only by the death of the Lamb that the unclean sinner could be released. Isn't it just so perfect? Aren't you so thankful that though you once were a Barabbas, the lamb gave his life for you? Though we were once unclean, his perfect, spotless, shed blood has washed us cleaner than snow. Mm. 
This is what life is all about, knowing where you're going. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truths that you give to us in your word about your son, the Lamb of God, who we love and we worship, not just this time of the year at resurrection, but every single day of our lives. May we truly, truly redeem our time wisely to just lift him up and witness of him to every Barabbas out there in the world, Lord. May our light so shine before men that they see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. We want to please you, Lord. We want to put a smile on your face. We want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So help us, Lord. Help us to die to self and pick up our cross and follow in your footsteps. We ask these things in accordance with your will and for your name's sake. Amen.